Great. It is so good to worship together, isn't it? You sing those songs and you're like, man, I, that could just carry on for a long time for me and I'd be a happy guy. It is the breath that we have in our lungs that he's given us to praise him. Do you want a title for this morning's message? I've called it For Such a Time as This. And I'd be grateful, please, if you turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 6. Just last week, we studied the first nine verses of the book of Exodus, and we saw hope for a troubled soul. Moses was that troubled soul. Moses had gone back to Pharaoh. He had talked to Pharaoh about letting God's people go. It had not gone well. Moses then was a troubled soul and was talking to God, saying, in effect, Lord, why? Why me? Why now? What is going on? I thought this was going to go well. It's gone horribly badly. And God speaks to him and gives him hope for a troubled soul, reminding him of who he is. And now he really does hold him in his hand as he does the people of God themselves. Well, in this next section for verses 10 through 30, it's a text that somewhat appears disjointed and strange, maybe a little bit perplexing. We have a genealogy in it, which is no doubt the very thing you've been waiting for all along in the book of Exodus, hoping, I cannot wait for week seven when we establish that. But I think what you discover is this text is amazing. It has amazing things in it that God wants us to know. And when it comes alive to us, oh my, how alive it becomes. So let's read together from verse 10 to verse 30. For this is the word of the Lord. So the Lord said to Moses, Go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. These are the heads of the fathers' houses, the sons of Reuben, firstborn of Israel, Hanuk, Palu, Hezron, and Kami. These are the clans of Reuben. The sons of Simeon, Jamuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shul, the son of a Canaanite woman. These are the clans of Simeon. These are the names of the sons of Levi, according to their generations, Gershon, Kohath and Merari, the years of the life of Levi being 137 years, the sons of Gershon, Libni, and Shemi by their clans, the sons of Kohath, Hamran, Izar, Hebron, and Uziel, the years of the life of Kohath being 133 years, the sons of Merari, Mali, and Mushi. These are the clans of the Levites according to their generations. Amran took as his wife, Jochebed, his father's sister, and she bore him Aaron and Moses, years of the life of Amram being 137 years. The sons of Ezar, Korah, Epheg, and Zikri. The sons of Uziel, Bashal, Alzaphan, and Sithri. Aaron took as his wife Elishaba, the daughter of Amenabab, and the sister of Nashon. And she bore him Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. The sons of Korah, Asir, Elkanah, and Biasaph. These are the clans of the Korites. Eleazar, Aaron's son, took as his wife one of the daughters of Putiel, and she bore him Phinehas. These are the heads of their father's houses of the Levites by their clans. These are the Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, 
Bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their hosts. It was they who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the people of Israel from Egypt, this Moses and this Aaron. On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? Let's pray. Well, Lord, we do thank you for your word. And we thank you for all of your word. All this is written for a purpose. Lord, you have given us breath in our lungs to praise you. And so, Lord, as I speak today, would it be worship to you? Would it be for you, the audience of one? And Lord, as we listen and carefully understand what is going on here, would this be worship for us all? Because these are your words given to us for a purpose. So speak to our souls, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, ancestry and family history at various different times in our lives, I think for all of us at various different times in our lives, it becomes interesting and important, doesn't it? That's why Ancestry.com does so well, because at some point in our lives we reach an age where we wonder, who am I from? Who are my people? How did I come about? And if we're honest, we're kind of hoping that somewhere along the line there might be like a king or a queen or a famous person or at least an infamous scoundrel that we might be related to. It's why the show Why Do You Think, Who Do You Think You Are was so popular. Because we got to watch on at some people that we sort of vaguely knew because they're popular and you started to discover where are they from? And then you find out there was a king or a queen or somebody famous or some infamous scoundrel in their life and so they're either in, either in tears or hysterics depending on what the news is. At some point in our lives, ancestry and family history becomes interesting and important to us all. And yet, when it comes to biblical genealogies, we don't exactly share that same passion, do we? We sort of come across them and we read it and we're like, can we not just get to the next chapter? I mean, what has this unearthed got to do with me? They can appear mundane, they can appear burdensome, and somewhat of a waste of time. And so when you read them, we can, I think, sometimes momentarily be entertained by a name. Certainly, I am. Simeon's son, Jamin. I mean, can you imagine going to school? What's your name? Jamin. Oh, cool, it's Jamin. I mean, it's just, it would be awkward. For the rest of your life, you know what's going to be said of you. Or the sons of Merari, Mali and Mushy. <laughs> Mushy. Imagine that. You're 16 years old. Oh, nice to meet you. What's your name? Mushy. I mean, it's just awkward. If, you lived, if she lived in England, we eat mushy peas. For the rest of her life, she'd be known as peas. I mean, this poor girl. Oh, sorry, this poor guy is just awkward. <laughs> exactly, you don't even know if they're men or women. So there's Jamin, there's Marley, there's Mushy, and then if you know anything about names, all names have meaning. And so some of these meanings are hilarious. So Palu's name means extraordinary. Imagine that, you arrive at school, or what's your name? Extraordinary. Oh, okay, you can go to the top of the class. Imagine the pressure you would live under. Poor old Cora, his name means baldy. So he arrives from his mother's womb. Oh my gosh, what would you call him? Oh, Baldy. I mean, for the rest of his life, he's known as Baldy. Or, for example, Nafeg. Nafeg's name means clumsy. Imagine that. He's working in a china shop. What's your name? Clumsy. Okay, find another job. I mean, just for the rest of your life, you're known as clumsy. 
You know, the reality is, although we might be momentarily amused by names, on the whole, when it comes to genealogies, they appear mundane, burdensome, and somewhat of a waste of time. But genealogies in the Bible are hugely important. They're put there for very significant reasons, and accordingly, we need to painstakingly understand them. And this one is no exception. In fact, if anything, this one is exceptional. Because this one arrives in the middle of a chiasm. Now, some of you may be thinking, Ooh, what's one of them? You know, what has that got to do with anything? Well, a chiasm in Scripture, a chiasm is a literary structure often seen in the Bible, which is designed to draw attention to its middle. And so if you ever read a commentary, you look at a study Bible, sometimes it talks about a chiasm and it's like, oh, it's incredible. It's an ABA structure or an ABCBA structure, and you're like, oh, isn't that interesting? Or isn't that not very interesting at all? But actually, it is incredibly interesting, because if you could see a chiasm, it would look like an hourglass. And the way it's set up is you have a piece of information at the start, and then you have the same piece of information reported to you at the end, but the whole, attention is, is, the whole point is it's to draw attention to the middle, like an hourglass. Two repeated sections, but the point is what's in the middle. The point in the middle tells us something. And this genealogy is in the middle of a chiasm. In verses 10, and 13, 10 to 13, and then repeated in verses 26 through 30, we have the same pieces of information reported to us. Both ends of the hourglass report to us about how God pursued Moses Both ends of the hourglass report to us how Moses didn't want to go, and both ends of the hourglass report to us how Moses didn't want to go because, Lord, I'm a man of uncircumcised lips, i.e., I'm the wrong guy. He's already said it before, now he's telling him again, Lord, you've got the wrong guy. I'm not very good at speaking. This isn't just going to work out. I'm just the wrong person to go to Pharaoh. I'm a man of uncircumcised lips. Don't set me apart for this text, for this task. I'm just not going to be able to do it. And in the middle of those statements, we have a genealogy for verses 14 through 25, where Moses is trying to help us see one thing: that I was wrong. I was wrong. I thought I was the wrong guy. But actually, as I now look at my history and my family history, I realize I was wrong. You were right. I was born for such a time as this. I was the right guy. And this text is here then in its entirety to teach us one wonderful thing. And it's this. That in the glorious wisdom and sovereignty of God, he never makes mistakes in his choosing. In the glorious wisdom and sovereignty of God, he never, ever makes mistakes in his choosing. So you have to understand, Moses is not writing this as a journal, okay? We're not reading Moses' journal as we go through Exodus. He's not writing this as we go along. He's writing this at the end of his life, under the Holy Spirit's guidance, And he's writing at the end of his life as the Israelites wander the wilderness and find themselves on the verge of entering the promised land. And as he pens it and he looks back on his life and looks back on his response to God all the time, saying to God, I'm the wrong guy, I'm the wrong guy. He wants to help the Israelites and indeed us now understand, I thought I was wrong, but actually, in hindsight, 
I was exactly the right guy. I mean, I'm more surprised than anybody, but I was actually the right guy to go to Pharaoh and the right guy to lead God's people. And he shows us in the glorious wisdom and sovereignty of God, God never makes mistakes in his choosing. Two points then this morning. Number one, a wonderful genealogy. And then number two, our wonderful opportunity to respond. First point is where we'll spend the bulk of our time. The second point will really be by application and conclusion. So number one, a wonderful genealogy. Moses had honestly thought, Lord, I am the wrong guy. Please don't send me back to Pharaoh. Not again. I had a go. It didn't go very well. I'm the wrong guy to go back yet again. You choose somebody else. I'm the wrong person. But now as he looks back on his life, he realizes, actually, I was the right person. Because as he looks back on his genealogy and his family tree, he sees, I was wrong and the Lord was right. This was all a divine setup. All the way through my heritage and my life, it was a divine setup. And what Moses does then, very cleverly in this genealogy, is he tells us four things about his family history that reinforce the reality that I was wrong, but God was right. It was a divine setup. I was always the one that was meant to go. Moses then tells us four things about his family history that are important, important reinforcements about how he's the right guy. And the first is this. He tells us that he comes from Number one, a priestly family. It's an important point, very important detail, very important to Moses. A priestly family. See, this genealogy then, like many other genealogies in the Bible, that it is selective. It doesn't go through each and every person in the history. It's not designed to. In this one, he doesn't even go through each of Jacob's 12 sons. It's not designed to do that. But Moses does, does very deliberately go through the first three sons. So Reuben, who's Jacob's eldest son, we see him in verse 14. Simeon, who's Jacob's second son. And then the third son, Levi, in verse 16. And the rest of the story is all about Levi. The emphasis is on Levi. And the reason why it's on Levi is because Moses wants us to know, that's my family. That's where I'm from. I'm from a descendant of Levi. I am, in effect, a Levite. And that is hugely important because as we go on to discover in the book of Exodus and then in the Bible, the Levites, the tribe of Levi, all those that have descended from Levi, go on to be priests for the living God. God calls them to be priests. And the primary role of a priest is what? To mediate between God and man. Priests are meant to stand in the place between God and man. And so as Moses looks back on his life, not understanding at first why a Levite would be even important, he looks back now and says, you know what? I'm a Levite. And so no wonder God asked me. Because Levites are meant to stand in between the place between God and man. We're meant to on occasion speak on behalf of God to the people. And we're meant to all the time be crying out to God on behalf of the people. Priests mediate. And so I thought I was the wrong guy at the time. But I look back now and realize I was the right guy. I'm a Levite. I was called to be a priest. 
It's why his older brother Aaron goes on to be the great high priest. The eldest brother has that role. It was what Aaron would go on to become, the great high priest within the new Israel and then the tabernacle. But Moses wants us to understand, I am from pure Levitical blood, and so I didn't see it at the time, but as I realize now, looking back on it, I was exactly the right type of person to go, because I'm from the priestly line. I was wondering this week, I wonder then what we might attempt to do for God now if we knew what we're going to go on to know 40 years from now. I wonder what we're going to know 40 years from now about how great God is, how good God is, how faithful He is. I wonder how what we would attempt to do today, knowing what we'll know from 40 years from now. Moses had the privilege of looking back at his life 40 years on, and so he wants us to see, listen, I thought I was the wrong guy, but it would appear that maybe I was the right guy because I come from a priestly family. But that's not all. He also wants to help us see, number two, that he comes from a passionate family. Family that, without doubt, is full of passion. See, there are two stories relating to two men that are mentioned in this genealogy, one at the start and then one at the end, that are important and worthy of special attention here. The first person he mentions then, verse 16, is Levi, his father, in effect, of the tribe, Levi himself. I mean, when it comes to Levi and we see his name, often when we think of his name, what do you first think of? Priest. You think of a guy in a white dress, you think of just the, you know, the family of priests, men that are well-dressed in their whites doing business in the tabernacle, and that's true. But to these original readers, as they heard this name, that's not all that they'd be thinking about. They would be thinking about how Levi started in life. And we see Levi start up in Genesis 34, and we're reminded in Genesis 34 how this all began for Levi. And it's not so impressive, because in Genesis 34, Dinah, who's Jacob's daughter, who's Levi's sister, Dinah is raped by Shechem, and Shechem now wants to marry her. So her brothers, they band together, Jacob's sons, and they say to him, well, you know what? We'll let you marry her, but, if you're, but the only way we're going to let you marry her is if your people become like us and your men get circumcised. Excellent idea. And it was a trick. Because he does this. Shechem says, okay, well then as for me and all my men, we'll get circumcised. So that's what they do. And three days later, after the circumcision takes place, when all these men are in pain and somewhat ill as a result of their circumcision and can barely operate, two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, go into the city and slaughter them all. Every last man they kill. Why? Because these men had a fiery passion for justice and truth. What he had done to his sister was wrong. And if that meant killing them all, that's what they're going to do. And Jacob himself, in Genesis 34, verse 30, says, Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me stink in the inhabitants of the land. And they had. But as far as Simeon and Levi were concerned, what that man did to our sister was wrong, and they can pay the price. You know, in effect, in many ways, what they had done was wrong. This wasn't the way to deal with justice. But the fire that they had in their bones, the passion for truth and uprightness and justice, was a good thing. That was a good instinct. And it's the very heritage from which Moses comes from. 
We see it all the way through the line then, particularly of the Levites. And so in Exodus chapter 32, as we'll see in a few months down the track, you know, there's this whole scene in the golden calf. And Moses comes down from the mountain, having encountered God. And what does he see? He sees them in their thousands worshipping a golden calf. Moses is fuming. God also is furious in his righteous wrath towards his people. And so Moses speaks on behalf of God and says, All right, all those who are then are with me and want to stand for truth and righteousness, come to me now. Who comes? The sons of Levi come. This one group in particular. And God instructs them to take their swords and to go to and fro from the land, from gate to gate, and 3,000 men are slaughtered that day that are standing in opposition to God and his holiness. But who comes? Levites. And then we see at the end of this genealogy a young man by the name of Phinehas. And we think, oh, it's just a name, interesting. What's it got to do with anything? Well, he's mentioned in verse 25 because Moses is helping us see this is the last one of our clan right now. This is the last Levite that I want to talk to you about. And everybody who would have been reading this would have known quite a bit about Phinehas as well because Phinehas also had a story to tell. See, Phinehas is the last one in the family tree mentioned. He's Aaron's grandson, so he would be, in effect, um, Moses' grandnephew. And what we discover in Numbers 25 is that Phinehas has a story to tell too. In Numbers 25, it recounts a time when Israel had begun to whore itself out to the daughters of Moab. They started to turn away from the Lord. They started to sleep with women inappropriately. Moabite women were enticing Israelite men. They were actually coming into the camp and enticing Israelite men to commit sexual immorality with them and play a part in spiritually adult, spiritual adultery with them, worshipping the Moabite gods and generally being up to no good. And the Israelite men are doing this in their droves at this time. And the judges, the people of God that have been set aside by God, were called by God to fight for justice when people are doing things wrong. But what are they doing? Sitting back all scared. I don't know what we should do. I don't know. This is awkward. I know they should die for it, but I don't know. They're going to not like us anymore. They are panicking. And then while they are panicking, this one man comes in, a man by the name of Zimri, And Zimri brazenly brings his Moabitess mistress to the tabernacle, intending to have sex with her in the tabernacle. It is filthy before the Lord where God's people have got to. And then Phinehas, Phinehas steps up. It says in Numbers 25, verses 7 to 9, When Phinehas, the son of Eliezer, son of Aaron the priest, saw it, he rose and left the congregation and took a spear in his hand, and went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them, the man of Israel and the woman through her belly. Thus the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. Nevertheless, those who died by the plague were 24,000. Phinehas stood before the Lord and could not cope with this anymore. If these judges aren't going to do anything about this, this stinks. This is wrong before the Lord. So full of fire and passion, he follows this man and his mistress into the tent of the Lord and he drives a spear through them both. Aware this is wrong. And God sees his faith and sees his fight for justice and relents in that moment from the plague of discipline he'd brought on his people. And God in that moment makes a new covenant actually with Phinehas, a covenant of peace. And he starts to raise him up to be used by him mightily again in the people, with the people of Israel. 
See, we just read a genealogy of names, but there's a ton of things going on here. And what Moses wants to help us see is, you know what? I'm a Levite. And us Levites, we're not only priestly, we're passionate, actually. It started with Levi. He was a passionate guy. And then think about Phinehas, the youngest one of us. I mean, he's a passionate guy as well. And so I thought I was the wrong guy. I thought I was the wrong guy to be going to Pharaoh. I thought this was kind of weird. But as I look back now, I realize I am actually from the right stock. God's chosen someone who's from a priestly line and also from a passionate line. You know, Moses, when he killed that Egyptian, thinking that the people of God would rally behind him and probably start an uprising that day, he did it in passion. Kind of makes sense now. It's a bit of a family trait. All Levites were passionate people. So Moses thought he was the wrong guy, but actually, it would appear he's the right guy. And then he wants to show us, number three, how he's from an imperfect family. Not only a priestly family and a passionate family, but actually an imperfect one. And we know Moses wants us to see it because there's many names in here he didn't need to mention, particularly the ladies. You didn't mention ladies in genealogies. It's just not what was done at the time. But he mentions a few. And he mentions them because he wants you and I to know, you know what? As you leaf through my family album, I want you to know there are a number of skeletons in the closet when it comes to my family. And there are. There's a number of things for Moses that would not want it to be discussed around the table when it comes to Christmas and New Year. There's a number of things they would not want bringing up. Please do not mention Auntie Ethel. You know, there's certain things that he would not want bringing up because it was awkward, because his family history was indeed an imperfect one and, and somewhat difficult to talk about. We take, for example, verse 15, the sons of Simeon. It says there well, that one of them is Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. Well, that's a problem. Because the Israelites were told never, ever to intermarry and interbreed with anybody beyond Israel. Oh, but actually, I just need to tell you about Shaul, who's the son of a Canaanite woman. Oh, that's difficult. That's awkward. That's imperfect. And then there's Amran, verse 20. Did you notice it? Look at it, verse 20. Amram is Moses' dad. It says in verse 20, Amram took as his wife, Jochebed. Okay, wonderful. She's the woman of faith. Do you remember that put Moses in the basket? Incredible stuff. Amram took as his wife, Jochebed, his father's sister. Oh. So Amram married his auntie. I mean, imagine that. So do I call my mom mom? Or great aunt. I mean, that's what's going on here. And what Moses wants us to know is, yeah, that was pretty dysfunctional. See, in Leviticus chapter 18, God makes it law, actually through Moses, that no such thing should happen. It was totally forbidden to marry your aunt. But I think Moses is mentioning it here, because in good conscience, even then, even before the law came, people understood, you shouldn't do that. And Moses could have left it out. But he wants us to know, you know what? Even my family history, it's actually a bit dysfunctional. My mum married his aunt. And I thought you should know. He then says about Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu in verse 23. They have an awkward story too. Another one that you wouldn't want to be bringing up around Christmas. See, like their dad, these men grew up to serve God in the tabernacle. 
And they were accordingly then given by the Lord very clear practices to follow. They already knew the Lord. They had already encountered the Lord. They knew how holy and powerful he was. They had been given a special privilege to accompany Moses and the 70 elders up the mountain in Exodus chapter 24 to encounter the living God. These boys should have known better. But when they are equipped to go into the tabernacle of the Lord and to worship the Lord, God gives them very, very specific things they are to do and they are not to do. But Nadab and Abihu, they want to get creative. They've decided they want to change things up a bit. They're a bit bored of what they're doing every day, so they want to do something different. They've forgotten who God really is. So Nadab and Abihu, these nephews of Moses, they take their senses and they put fire in them and then they add incense, something they're totally forbidden to do. They are offering unauthorized fire and worship before the Lord, contrary to his commands. And Leviticus chapter 10 verse 2 says that God did this in response to them. It said, And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. You don't mess with the living God. And he lit them up like a light bulb in this moment. He zapped them. They were done. Boom! They should have known better. They were arrogant in the way they sought to change things up. And God God lit them up and killed them in a moment. We go on to discover that Mishael and Elizaphan, their cousins, had to drag them out from the tabernacle by their feet and put them outside the gate. You wouldn't want to bring that up over Christmas lunch, would you? Hey, do you remember those boys? Oh, no, let's not mention those boys. I mean, it's just there's, there's a number of things. And then there's Moses' cousin, verse 21. A cousin called Korah. And Korah, well, he had a pretty big story to tell as well. Because Korah, single-handedly, Moses' cousin, led an entire uprising and rebellion against Moses, something we read about in Numbers chapter 16. Korah was not content with his God-given place of ministry. Korah felt that he should be higher up the ladder He believed that he deserved more recognition, more of a place of seniority, and the only reason for not getting it, he believed, was one man, Moses. And so Korah goes toe-to-toe with Moses, and Moses warns him, saying, listen, I am the Lord's anointed. It's not my fault. God appeared to me. He called me to this task. I'm trying my best. And Korah, I warn you, do not challenge the Lord's anointed like this. It will not go well for you. Well, Korah did not listen. He was abusive towards Moses. He was in rebellion of Moses. He stood against the Lord's anointed. And we read then the following in Numbers 16, verse 31 to 33, after Moses' warning. And as soon as he had finished speaking all these words, the ground under them split apart, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the people who belonged to Korah and all their goods. So they and all that belonged to them went down alive into Shoal, and the earth closed over them, and they perished from the midst of the assembly. It was a big deal to stand in rebellion against the Lord's anointed messenger. And Korah found out the hard way. Moses warned him he would not listen. God opened the ground, killed them all, apart from a small remnant that go on actually to write that beautiful psalm that says, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house. It's beautiful. They had learned something of humility. But this, this core, he ain't learned nothing apart from the grave. So Moses, as he's standing there, he's like, you know what? 
I just want to be honest with you all. There's a few skeletons in the family closet, you know. We are like a dysfunctional family. <laughs> I'm from a heritage that's not exactly great. This family is far from perfect. You know, as I thought about it this week, you know who this family reminds you of? Mine and yours. We all have skeletons in the closet, don't you? You start looking through the family history. You're like, oh, oh, there is that one person. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we don't try and bring them up too much. It's awkward. Everybody has stories to tell and things and fractions that you think, I'm the most unlikely person ever to be used by God. But what Moses has grown to understand over the years as he looks back on his life is, you know what? Everybody's imperfect. God uses imperfect people all the time to do great things as they trust in him. Look at me, for example, Moses is saying. So he wants to hang all his dirty laundry out to help you see, you know what? As I look back on my life, I thought I was wrong, but actually I realized I was the right guy because I was from priestly heritage, I was from passionate heritage, and I've got an imperfect family just like everybody else. But it would appear that God does great and incredible things with people from imperfect families. Families like mine. And then finally, he wants to help us see that he is from a promissory family. Now you're probably wondering what does promissory mean? Well, in a legal transaction, one may give a promissory statement to another individual, and when they do, it is guaranteeing something that they will do. It's a promissory statement. When I give you that, when I say that, it will happen. I guarantee it. And when you think about the people of God, God has been doing that to the people of God all along, hasn't he? He's been making promises to them. And so we see in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15... That God makes a covenant with Abraham and the people of God to make of them a great nation. A nation where there will be a blessing to all the other nations and a nation where he will be their God and they will be his people. So he comes and he encounters Abraham and he speaks to Abraham making it clear, I will make of you a great nation and I promise this will happen. And that's the bit we all know, right? That's the bit that we hear repeated all the time. But we must pay attention to what else God said to him. Because in Genesis 15, verses 13 to 16a, God says, listen, I'm going to do this, but I want you to know something. It's going to be really hard. This isn't going to come as you think it's going to come. It's actually going to be hard. So I'm going to make a promise now that I'm going to make of you a great nation. And they will be my people and I will be their God. But this is for the next 400 years going to be tricky. This is what he says to him in Genesis 15. He says, then the Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. Oh, so God made that part of the covenant, told him, yep. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, meaning Egypt, as we went on to find out. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions, which they did. As for you, you shall go to the, your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a, at a good old age. And they shall come back here. He's speaking while he's in Canaan. They shall come back here in the fourth generation. In the very first place when God communicates to Abraham, he's saying, listen, I'm going to make of your offspring a great nation. They will be my people. They will, they will be my people. I will be their God and I will respond to them and I will make for them a blessing to all the other nations. But for the next 400 years, it's going to be really hard. 
all the way until the fourth generation. And then in the fourth generation, it will change because then they will come into my land and I will give them possession of it. Well, pay attention then what Moses is doing here then from verse 16 onwards. So what he's doing is this. He's saying, okay, count with me. First generation, sons of Levi, Gershon and Kohath and Merari. Second generation, sons of Kohath, Amran, Ezar, Hebron and Uziel. Third generation, sons of Amram, Aaron and me. As he leads the people of God, as they're on the brink of the promised land, he wants them to know, listen, God promised that this wouldn't be hard, but he promised that the fourth generation is where it would happen. The fourth generation is when you will inherit the land. And guess what, guys? I'm the third. And my life's coming to an end. What he's saying to Israel is, listen, Israel, look at my genealogy. It's your time now. I am the third generation. You are the fourth. You are going to be home before you think. And so Israel, it looks like I was the right guy after all. I struggled to trust God. I struggled to believe in God. I argued with God, letting him know I'm not the right guy. I'm a man of uncircumcised lips. But God sent me anyway, and I did all I could. But as I look back now, I realize I was the right guy all along. I didn't know it at the time. But as I look back now, I realize I was the right time. I'm from a priestly family. I'm from a passionate family. I'm from a dysfunctional family, just like yours. And I'm from a promissory family. And I'm the third generation, and now is your time. Listen, in the glorious wisdom and sovereignty of God, God never makes mistakes in his choosing. That's what Moses wants to help them see. And it's what Moses, through the gift of the Holy Spirit, I believe, wants to help us see as well. God never makes mistakes in his choosing. Not only choosing Moses, but choosing you. Choosing you. And that brings us to our second point then. Our wonderful opportunity to respond. I mean, how should we respond to this type of text? Do we just read it and go, That's, that is fascinating. Thank you very much. How fascinating. No. As we know by now, the Bible is alive. It speaks to me. It has feet. It runs after me. It has hands. It lays hold of me. As we read the Bible, it is always reading us. There are things in it that God wants to communicate to us today, saying, this is you today. This is alive in your life today. There are things in here that God wants us to understand. And when you think about what a genealogy does as a whole, what a genealogy does is it causes us to look back and remember. Look back, Israel. Remember who I was. Remember how God brought us safe this far. It's a scandal, but as I look back and remember, behold the faithfulness and kindness and wisdom and glory of God. In his wisdom and sovereignty, he never makes mistakes in his choosing. So how do we respond? Well, three quick ways that I think we respond. Number one, we respond by remembering where we've come from too. You see, my friends, Moses was wonderfully aware as he pens this book later in life 
that this is all of grace. I mean, I didn't even want to go. But God held me, and God kept me, And look what he did, Israel. Look what he did. He saved us. What did we bring to the party? Well, our bondage to slavery and sin and difficulty. Israel, let me remind you, when I came and talked to you about what God is wanting to do, you actually said to me, no. In response to me telling you, God will, God will, God will, God will, you let me know, well, I won't. That was what we brought to the party, Israel. But look at what God has done in the way he has saved us. Look at my genealogy. I mean, only God could divinely set that up. It is all of grace. And look at this gift of salvation that we have in our lives. It is all his doing, Israel. And as Moses, sorry, Paul then takes up that same theme to the book of 1 Corinthians. He starts talking about you. Remember who you are. Remember what you're about. This is what he says, 1 Corinthians 1. Verse 26, he says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. For he is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, that the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. For consider your calling, brothers. Consider who you were. Let me tell you who you were. Consider it. You were dead in your transgressions and sins uninterested in the Lord, unable to respond to the Lord. You were in bondage to the power and penalty of sin in your life. And in and of yourself, you could do nothing about it. What did you bring to your salvation? Nothing. Apart from your bondage to the penalty and personal experience of sin. That's what you brought to the party. What did he bring? Well, before the foundation of the earth, he chose you. At the right time, he sent his son. He sent forth his son to die as your substitutionary sacrifice and then at the right time through the gift of faith he opened your eyes to the gospel so consider your calling brothers and make your boast in Christ how kind of the Lord in Exodus chapter 6 in the most unlikely of places through a genealogy to remind us of our stories as well to remind us that this is you You're no different. Exodus all the way through, it's us. It's a picture of us. It's a reality of what happened. But all the New Testament writers, they all look back all the time saying, this is you, this is you. This is what you're like. How kind of the Lord to give us this moment to remember where we've come from too. I think we worship the Lord by slowing down and remembering where we've come from. Regularly and ongoingly. Because it's when we do that that I think humility and joy will always be our things. Because we should be coming in through those doors on a Sunday, shaking our head, wondering, how did I get here? And why me? Because what I've done in my life is all said, I won't! But now I'm worshipping the Lord. Why? Well, because he said, I will. 
and he was committed to me from the start and he always will be. It should humble us and it should induce gratitude and joy in our hearts to the Lord as we realize it is all of grace and it is all your doing. I think we respond to this by remembering where we've come from too. Number two, we respond to this by remembering too our family history. Our family history. You see, my friends, through the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ, this family that you read about here in Exodus chapter 6, through the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ, this family has also become your family and my family. This is our heritage. All those who put their faith in Jesus Christ, they are grafted into this family. All those who put their faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, this becomes part of our heritage. And what that means is we understand in this genealogy, we have a legacy. In 2018 in Sydney, we have a legacy, and it is a wonderful legacy. Because as you read this Bible, you see it is filled with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people who are imperfect people just like us but who dared to trust God and put their faith in God and attempt great things for God. And look at what he did through them. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses. And then we go on to Peter and James and John and Paul. The Bible is filled with people all the way through that all have stories to tell that you probably want to repeat around the Christmas table with your kids present. But God used them because they dared to believe in him. They dared to stand on this word and say, as for me and my home, I'm worshiping the Lord. I'm all in. I'm going to believe in it. I'm going to seek to use my life for the glory of God alone. See, I remember when I was a kid, I remember one time being at school and uh, my brother, I can't remember what exactly was happening, but he was definitely getting picked on by some boys. My brother's three years younger than I am. Um, And I was kind of roughly present. And I could see what was going on, but, you know, I'm hanging out with my friends playing football, and that's really important to me at that point in my life when I was about eight years old. Um, and so we got home that night, and my brother's crying. He's chatting to my dad and saying, oh, you know, I got picked on by these boys. And, and he said, well, where was David when this was happening? And you know when David comes out, there's going to be a problem. Um, and my brother said, well, I think he, was, I think he could see me because I could see him sometimes. And, And my dad looked at me and said, Dave, why didn't you uh, respond? You know, your brother was getting picked on. And I said, oh, Dad, I was, I was playing football. And, and I'll never forget it. He looked me in the eye. And he said, son, you're a tailor. And we stick together. When anybody's been picked on in our family, son, we stand together. You're part of the family. You're a tailor. And I never, ever, ever want to hear of a family member being picked on again and you not stepping up. You are a big brother. You're a tailor. It's our heritage, it's our history, we stick together. And I remember I was probably about seven, eight years old and thinking, I will never, ever do that again. Because I have a legacy. I have a history in my family. We stick together. Whatever happens, we stand together. You know, in so many ways, I think, in the way this genealogy is, it should invoke in our hearts something of, you know what, I'm not just a tailor or a wood or a spring or whatever it is. I'm a part of this rich legacy of the kingdom of God. And so it must change the way I talk and speak and act because we're always standing on their shoulders. Flick through the book. These are all our ancestors. 
We need to bring to mind, I think, for the glory of God, our family history too, and realize we haven't just rocked up as an I generation here in Sydney, quick 70 years, boom, gone. We are part of a story that's been going on for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Let that invoke in your heart a redemptive effect of, I have a legacy. I need to make my life count. Just the same way my dad said to me, hey, you're a tailor. I want to say to you, my friends, you are in Christ. It's different for you now. You have a legacy. And then number three, I think we respond to this by remembering that we too have been called for such a time as this. See, the reality is Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and Peter and James and John and Paul and all the other greats and minors of the Bible and in Christian history, they're all gone. Their race is run. They finished. But now you and I are running the race. It's our turn. It's our time. You have been deliberately called by God for such a time as this. So friends, I want to encourage you then, by the grace of God and for his glory, deliver your lines. Moses delivered his lines. He would indeed go back to Pharaoh. He would encounter Pharaoh, and as you know, as the story unfolds, God indeed did break in on this situation, and Pharaoh did let the people go. Moses delivered his lines, but now he is gone. Exodus is complete. But your Exodus story is still being written. What are you going to do with your life? Deliver your lines, my friends. Through your actions and through your words, deliver your lines. If you want to know what that means, Paul tells us in Ephesians 4, live in a manner worthy of the calling that you've received. What calling? Well, Exodus chapters 1, 2, and 3. The glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. The fact you've been forgiven and redeemed and reconciled and adopted and heaven is your home. The Holy Spirit is a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance. Live in a manner worthy of the calling you've received. He goes on to tell us then, by way of words and actions, what that means like in marriage and singleness and in our workplaces and in our churches and in our unity and in our speech and in our model of living. All their lines have gone. But we are still called to deliver our lines, so would we deliver them? In the glorious wisdom and sovereignty of God, he never makes mistakes in his choosing. He didn't with Moses, and he didn't with you. He's called you for such a time as this. So never lose sight of where you've come from. Never lose sight of your family history, and never lose sight of the reality that this is your time. Deliver your lines, and with all glory go to him. Let's pray. Lord, genealogies appear at first glance to be potentially a time waster. But Lord, I thank you for including them all in your holy, sovereign, and sufficient word. I thank you for the important part they play in your word. And Lord, would you forgive us for times when we take them so trivially. Lord, thank you for bringing to life this genealogy today. Thank you for helping us see what it is all about. And Lord, would you help us now to understand that you never make mistakes in your choosing. Moses was used for such a time as that. 
And we now have been called for such a time as this. So help us to deliver our lines, Lord. I would all glory go to you. Amen.